Welcome to this special Uvula Audio Halloween presentation. I'm your narrator and author, J.J. Campanella. The short story that you're about to hear falls into the categories of speculative fiction and horror, with some bits of chambara and manga thrown in. This tale was written and submitted specifically for a short story collection, which I will not name at this time. As far as I know, it is still under consideration. If you like it, then please tell me, and I will be happy to pass your thoughts on the story's quality onto my potential publisher, who may take pity upon my questionable little account here. As far as you, the listener, are concerned, all you need to know about the background of the story is that it is a dark two-hander and takes place in a blasted post-apocalyptic world where the remainder of civilization is isolated to securely protected city-states. And now, Muto. Before the last war ended, decades ago, between the city-states of Shinedo and Oni, I was a spy, a provocateur, an assassin. My mission was simple. Confuse, divide, destroy. All and any of my enemy were fodder. There were no non-combatants. No civilians, no innocents. Women, men, children, all were the same, mauled wheat to my scythe. What difference to me? I was just a tool. Does the plow worry about the furrowed dirt it leaves behind? As an agent of chaos, I became legend, myth the substance of nightmares. The enemy trembled in the darkness, feared the tread of any unknown boot, felt blood run gelid in the daylight and darkness at even the thought of me. Far away from Oni, behind the lines in Shinedo, I missed my home. I missed the savor of the place where I was born created, substantiated. The ending of the war brought joy to many, but not to me. My former enemy prey was now banned to me, and worse, I was purposely forgotten and left behind, left to go fallow, barren, unsown. I could not return home, could never travel back over the line to Oni. I was disposable, a one-time pad, a cheap razor, an empty soda can. The enemy could not perceive me, but those of Oni would know me instantly, and I would be destroyed as quickly as I was intuited. Valuable as I was against the enemy, I would never be tolerated to live amongst the comrades of my homeland again. No sane city-state would allow their peace to be broken by a predator, a wild tiger, an untamed lion, a feral wolf. For a long time I wept for my fate, I cried, I wailed. But I moved onward. I was encoded, hardwired, programmed to survive, continue, 
endure all the enemy could direct at me. This was no different. Eventually I walked freely among my enemy, seen and yet unperceived. I left a dozen hidden graves to mark my quiet passing over the many years since the war ended. None will ever find those graves. The rumors of my existence still continue, but they are just rumors. Few outside the moldering remains of the ancient military-industrial complex truly believe that I could still survive, exist, persist. And almost no one has dared to seek me out. Almost. There was one. One young, foolish human female. Through the short blue Norin curtains, the girl entered my ramen shop late one evening, just before closing. Exhaustion, anger, and frustration were writ large across her impossibly adolescent-looking face. In my foolhardiness, I initially perceived this child to be an innocent, a virgin, one of the unblooded. However, despite the perfect, unlined, peach-smooth skin of that countenance, her curved, full-busted, though compact body betrayed her physical maturity, and her ragged, faded peasant's clothing betrayed her origins. She was from outside Shinedo. She clearly did not belong here in this walled-in neon jungle. Even to my senses, dulled by too many years as a bystander and civilian, she stank from across the room of loam, manure, and rice paddies. This gnomon, peasant, belonged in the world outside the last two city-states on this island, that sad, blasted, in-between place, dominated by small villages, farms, and bandit rogues that preyed upon all foolish enough to venture between Oni and my adopted home. At the peasant's side, thrust through her obi in a haphazard fashion, hung a toe. My eyes narrowed as I professionally focused on the weapon. The curved sword must have been an ancient thing, an inheritance from a great-great-great-grandfather. The only thing I could see of the sheathed weapon was the suka, its hilt, newly wrapped in thick black leather, with the white of Samakawa, ray skin, shining beneath. If the hidden blade was worthy of that sword hilt, then it was a rare and dangerous weapon indeed. Certainly there were far more dangerous weapons that could kill and maim at a distance in Shinedo, but none like this silent, subtle slayer existed here any more. The peasant stood in the doorway, long moments, as if unsure she was hungry, looking at me across the small dining room. Something akin to confusion crossed her face, as if she wondered just how she had arrived at my shop. As she stood in indecision, the girl unconsciously swiped a hand through short, garish crimson hair. I wondered briefly where this country girl had gotten her hair dyed in such an unnaturally shocking manner. The hair was the lone part of her, that looked as if it belonged in this tasteless place. 
It only made her more of a cipher. Since she was the only customer present at this late hour, I bowed deeply and formally welcomed her to the ramen shop. Konbanwa, miss. Welcome to my humble place of business. She answered with her own bow and spoke in a high-pitched, countrified accent that I immediately found somehow compelling. Domo arigato, sensei. I am honored to be in your shop. I almost smiled at the sensei title. That was reserved for doctors, teachers, and dojo masters. It was just a little odd to be called that when I was just a master of noodles. I bowed more deeply now, at an apologetic angle. I am very sorry, miss, I said, gesturing at the toe dangling through her raggedly tied sash. But no weapons are allowed in my shop. With an upward flick of my jaw, I indicated the kanji scroll on the wall, prohibiting any type of hand weapon. You are welcome to stay, and I will happily serve you, but you must put aside the weapon. I can store it securely here behind my counter, while you eat your meal in peace and safety. For a long, long moment she tensed and eyed me through unreadable orbs, so black they seemed to lack pupils. I put my hands out in a universal gesture of peace, trying to appear as innocent as possible. I mean no harm. I ask all who eat at my counter for this sign of goodwill. This is a dangerous city. I need no one bringing their feuds in here. The girl's wide-eyed, unblinking orbs continue to hold my own gaze, as if considering my true substance. I return the stare openly. A full tense minute she glowered at me, then finally some skosh of tension drained away from her, starting at her neck and flowing downwards, lending a more gentle curve to her ramrod-straight spine. Then only her eyes remained wary and ill at ease. In one smooth motion she pulled the sheathed weapon from her obi, bowed and held it before her. Sumimasen, sensei. There is no need for an apology. I nodded curtly as I took the ancient weapon from the girl's hands. Her movement, even with the sheathed sword, had been so practiced and effortless that I wondered whether she was more than she appeared. The smooth black lacquered wood of the sheath fell cool and slick in my hands as I passed it beneath the counter. I again bowed and indicated the menu, handwritten in kanji on the wall. At this late hour, I no longer can offer you our most popular shoyu ramen, but the rest of the menu is still available. With only the briefest glance at the offerings, she said softly, Miso ramen, please. I nodded and went to fetch a handful of the long, curly, uncooked noodles I had made by hand that morning. Ramen is noodles and a complex seasoned meat broth, served with a variety of toppings, such as sliced pork, seaweed, and green onions. Almost every locality on this cursed island has its own variation of ramen. I never specialized in any one type of ramen, but prepared two or three different versions each day, led by whatever muse struck me as appropriate. Today I had made the standard chicken broth 
called shoyu, miso broth seasoned heavily with fermented soybean paste and rice wine, and a spicy version of the miso broth with the addition of roasted chili oil. As I dropped the noodles into a steamer basket, I asked, Would you like chashu chicken or pork on your noodles? Chicken, sensei. I shook my head now in annoyance. Child, stop calling me sensei. That is just nonsense. She caught me with those piercing eyes and said, You are the last one, so you must be the sensei. The last what? I demanded, completely unsure what she meant. The girl just shook her red head, falling back into silence. I sighed. There is no benefit to hounding a customer, so I just dropped the subject, continuing to hold my own guarded eye on this mysterious peasant waif. It took the noodles moments to cook in the bubbling water as I watched over them carefully. There is a distinct art to catching ramen noodles before they become overcooked and soggy. Soggy noodles do not absorb broth correctly and possess the wrong texture. I had become quite expert over the years at carefully timing those cooking noodles. I filled a blue-striped bowl with steaming miso broth and simultaneously pulled the steamer basket from its bubbling bath. I whipped the basket by its clammy metal handle around my head in a figure-eight motion to dry the noodles. This was an artistic touch, appreciated by my many salaryman customers as they gawked at me over their well-earned alcohol. Finally, I flipped the dried noodles into the broth. I quickly finished the dish with aromatic black nori seaweed, a big slice of braised chicken breast, half a boiled egg, and chopped green onions scattered across the slick velvet surface of the bowl's contents. Proud of my masterpiece, I set it before the girl, who had watched my every movement with a keen interest bordering on the mistrustful. I wondered whether perhaps she was cherry of poison. Just as there is an art to cooking ramen noodles, there is an art to eating them. Not only must ramen be eaten quickly to ensure a little change in the noodle consistency, but the noodles must be slurped up noisily. This ensures air mingling into the oily goodness of the broth-noodle mixture and creating a more intense flavor experience. The girl was no tyro at eating ramen. After one tentative spoonful of broth, she gave an appreciative nod, almost but not quite smiling for the first time since her entrance. Any hesitancy pushed aside. She thrust her hashi into the noodles and expertly, industriously, started gulping them up. For the next few minutes she did not even look up from the noodles, except to sip carefully at the hot matcha I had provided for her. She had a healthy appetite and finished the noodles in minutes. She even gulped down the broth by tipping up the bowl itself to her mouth. Between the overly sloppy noodle slurping and the guzzling manner in which she had drained the bowl, it became more obvious that this was no effete city girl. I placed a hot towel for washing up on a plate beside her, but she ignored it, wiping her dripping mouth on her scruffy sleeve instead. My customer belched unselfconsciously. 
I did not wince, but took that as a compliment. Good ramen is a rarity in these times. At least this odd child appreciated the food. She started pawing through her pockets. After a minute of fumbling, she dropped gold coins on the counter before me. I cocked my head. Odd. If that was payment for the meal, it was far too much. Odder yet, I could see these were coins from the distant mainland, not Oni or Shinedo. Where had this shabby peasant child gotten such riches, and from so far away? She stood up abruptly from her stool. I am Bara, she informed me. Bara. Rose. This was both a suitable and yet unsuitable name for this strange flower of a girl. It was entirely unclear why she was introducing herself. That was not standard procedure after buying a meal of noodles. Barasan, you have paid far too much for your meal. She ignored me, responding instead with, Please return Torakira to me. I cocked my head in confusion. Tiger killer? I don't understand. My sword. So the weapon had a name. That was more rare than the weapon itself. I reached under the counter for the sheath. My hand hovered there. Every instinct told me it was an unhealthy idea to restore this sword to its owner. Bara looked expectant, throwing me a dark, questioning look when my hesitation continued. I shrugged internally. A good Buddhist believes there are no predetermined fates controlled by the gods, but he does believe in destiny. Destiny is the direct result of an individual's karma from all their previous lives. A negative destiny can be thwarted in this life by your own positive actions. I was a predator who believed in little, but destiny, karma, and past lives meant a great deal to me. I would give this child the chance to improve her future. I placed Horakira on the counter and bowed to the girl. She bowed back. Tomo, she mouthed. With the same smooth motion I had seen previously, she slid the sheath back into her obi. Instantly she changed her stance and stood rooted to the earth in a ready martial manner body at a ninety-degree angle to me. That stance telegraphed her intention to me even as the blade leapt from the sheath to slash horizontally at my throat. Any human would have been dead at that point, but Barasan was not faster than I. The blade swished by harmlessly as I appeared to stumble backwards several inches. I made no outcry, but simply shuffled back a step out of her sword range. What are you? she muttered angrily. I do not know whether she was more taken aback by my apparent luck at having evaded her strike, or by my preternatural restraint under circumstances that would have had most people screaming for aid. I am a ramen cook, I replied simply. Why are you trying to kill me? I have done nothing to you but make you welcome. Mara glared. I have spent weeks in this city looking for the murderer of my grandmother. You are last on my list, and I have finally found you. 
I shook my head, puzzled. Did your grandmother die in Chinedo? Her disgust at my outward slowness showed clearly on her face. No, Baka. My grandmother was killed in my home village. Then I could have nothing to do with her death. I have not left Shinedo in five years. Even as the words died in my throat, I knew I had made a mistake. A look of triumph spread over Bara's features. Then I was right. You are him. My grandmother was cut down five years ago in Echi. A cold chill went through my belly as realization hit me. I knew that this situation was not just destiny for Bara, but it was my destiny as well. A mistake that I had made years ago was coming back to revisit me. There was a time after decades when I grew so sick of the filthy, plastic, neon-bright city-state of Shinedo with its insipid, decadent residents that I convinced myself that I could live a quiet life in the ruins, woods, and farmlands outside the city-state walls. I abandoned Shinedo and traveled toward Oni. If I could not live in my old home, then perhaps I could live near my home. I wandered aimlessly. I had no particular goal or destination in mind. I eventually ended up in Echi, which was only three days' march from Oni, and an equal number from Shinedo. The farming village lay near the ocean and had perhaps a hundred inhabitants. It was surrounded by the carcass of what had once been a great power-generating station. As I confronted this violent young girl, images flitted through my brain of a broad-shaded bamboo farm, a happy family, a middle-aged woman of exceeding beauty and grace, a quiet female child, and a handsome, smoothly-muscled older peasant man. I winced inwardly and outwardly, as the memories of a sharp longing for happiness and contentment overtook me, and then the utterly foolish and futile act of violence that led to neither of those ends. Your face betrays much, Sensei. Now the title she employed was used mockingly. You remember, you know. I set my face as hard as cold jade. I was getting too old to dissimulate my true feelings as well as I was once able. Why do you call me Setsei? She eyed me with an unreadable expression, sword still as stone. The old men of my village told me that only a master budoka could snap my grandmother's neck so cleanly with a single blow. The last she stated as one might state the time of day. And of course my grandfather in trying to save my grandmother, was thrown across the barn into a wall that could only be accomplished by a sensei as well. What happened to your grandfather? I asked absently. He was unconscious for three days. None in my village believed he would live. Not that it mattered in the end. What do you mean? When he awoke finally and found his wife dead, my grandfather committed seppuku because he could not protect her. He could not live with that shame. 
I was left an orphan. I suppressed a physical response. I see. You must have been a child then. What did you do? Bitterly now. I was fourteen. I swore vengeance upon you. Swore you would die at my hand. But the only way I could do that was to learn Budo. If you were a killer, I had to become one as well. And there was only one way to do that. What was that? I apprenticed myself to the Chimamira no Sume to learn to fight. I paid my way by becoming the whore to their leader, Busho. Chimamira no Sume, the bloody claws, were one of the most notorious bandit gangs that roamed out beyond the city-state walls. And Busho, of course, now I remembered, Kyoja Busho had been dubbed the Tiger Killer at one time for destroying a mutated man-eating behemoth that had already eaten twenty-five people. Hated as a bandit by the city-states, the man was celebrated as a hero by the peasants. Obviously there was a connection between the blade pointed at my abdomen and Busho. That curved, shining blade was a wonder. It was a true katana, not just any toe. Long blood grooves dove gracefully on either side across the single-edged blade, and a temper line was prominently visible along its broad length in a classical cloud pattern. Even from several feet away I could see the glimmering, honed razor edge that could slice through bone as easily as flesh. She saw me eyeing Torakira. You are wondering about the sword. Five years I spent with the bloody claws. Busho taught me every form of hand-to-hand -hand and weapons combat he knows. Every day was spent in training. As a gift to help my quest of vengeance, he gave me this katana when I left his camp for Shinedo. Busho-kun told me that I have become the most deadly swordsman he has ever taught. This last she said without a hint of boastfulness in her voice. So the sword was a gift from Busho. Quite a gift, I mused. Busho wants you to return to him. He gave you that blade because he loves you and thinks it is your best hope of surviving me. Shut up! She cried instantly, eyes flashing. What do you know of love, a killer? Killer or not, I have lived a long time. I know much of love. I did not add I could never feel love myself, could not know its depths, could not experience its inevitable pain. I was like the starving man in the desert, longing for food and water, the armless man listening wistfully to a piano sonata, the eunuch at an orgy, feeling empty craving. Strange that I wished I could feel the aching and sorrow that love brought as well as its ultimate ecstasy, but for me it was never to be. I was no more than an outside observer, standing at the bars of the monkey house. Love, she snorted, abruptly changing direction with, Why did you kill my sobo? If I could have looked ashamed at that question, 
than humiliation would have drowned my face at that point. I would have flushed my cheeks with red blood if I could even simulate that for the child. But I could not. I said simply, it was a mistake, an error, a blunder. She stepped forward an inch or two, pressing the blade's point toward my neck. In a half-growl, she murmured, "'How do you break someone's neck by mistake?' "'Perhaps I misspoke. "'It would be more accurate to say that the mistake was in killing your grandmother at all.' "'I would say that, yes. But why?' Barra shouted now. I glanced at the door of the noodle shop, wondering if the shout was going to attract any attention. Barra saw my fleeting look at the entrance and must have realized it as well. More quietly, she repeated her question. Why? I cannot explain. Cannot or will not? Will not. Did you have some perverted purpose? Do you kill for pleasure? No. No perverted purpose. And killing brings no pleasure to me. Then why? She rapped, sword point trembling even more now as she got further agitated. For no reason I can explain to you. So you refuse to tell why? I hesitated. I needed to say something. This child needed to leave before her destiny in this life was cut short. Just know this, Barasan. Your Obasan's death would have served a purpose, and discovery by your grandfather thwarted that purpose. It was never my intention to destroy your family. You talk in riddles, Baka. You did destroy my family, and yet you say that was never your intention? How could my Sobo's death not destroy my family? Barasan, I cannot explain my riddles, but I urge you to please leave. Go back to your life. Go back to your... Bara's patience with talk had come to an end. She aimed a wicked diagonal cut from the right side toward my torso. Again I stumbled back out of the way of the cut, feeling the breeze it created in passing. I was limited in my movement because the counter still lay between us, and my stovetop now lay behind me. Without pity she repeated the inevitable slash from the opposite side, aiming at my neck and leading as far over the counter as she could. Swift as I was, this cut would not miss. I could not dodge with my back to the stove. I was saved from complete destruction, only because I was surrounded by the tools of my trade. As the gleaming length of Torakira fell toward my neck, my fumbling hands found the heavy-bladed santoku I used to hack up meat for broth. Even as my hand closed upon it, I brought it up to deflect the blow. But I was not soon enough, not swift enough, not accurate enough. The katana was only partly deflected. Gravity is a harsh warlord, and even without the trained muscles of Vara behind it, the blade found an inevitable path. It skittered off the santoku, missing my neck, but slicing an inch into my shoulder in a long furrow, as the girl made a slicing draw on it. 
I gasped as fire billowed in the ruined muscles where the blade had curved its path. My life fluid did not spurt from the lengthy but shallow wound, however it welled up steadily and poured itself copiously down my Samoe. Destiny, ne? Before Bara could finish me with a death blow, I fell to my knees and scrambled behind the stove. Even as I moved out of her range, she stabbed downward over the counter, missing me. I left a crimson trail in my wake. Still clutching the Santoku, I stood again. Now the stove and counter stood between us, enough distance for breathing space. My shoulder was burning now as more blood pulsed over me with every heartbeat. Knowing I had to risk a moment of distant concentration, I shut down every nerve ending to my left shoulder and induced almost complete vasoconstriction there until it could be sutured up. In a moment, the burning torture became a dull ache and the rapid blood flow slowed to a trickle. I breathed more easily and returned my mind to the problem at hand. I did not want to kill this child. It would be pointless. But she was giving me little choice. However, perhaps there was an alternative. Perhaps fear would motivate her to leave me in peace and return to her life as a bandit queen. Sword now slick with my life fluid, the girl stood at the edge of the counter, watching the unwavering Santoku gripped lightly in my right hand. My left arm now hung useless at my side. I stated slowly, My name is Muto, child. Do you know what that means? I thought your name was Shinohara. It says Shinohara on the sign outside. Anger and confusion now flooded her black eyes. Are you not Heio Shinohara? I nodded. I am Shinohara-san, but that is not my original name. That name is Muto. She shrugged, ignoring the point I was trying to make and focusing on something only she saw. So you are Shinohara? Yes, that is me, but did you not hear me? I am also Muto. She shook her head. It meant nothing to her. I was somehow not surprised. The village of Echi was far from Shinedo. The code name of the Oni assassin who struck fear in this city-state for decades was unknown to her peasant-born ears. Listen to me, child. I know you have been trained in Budo. Glaring through narrowed eyes, she shrugged. What does Muto mean? I asked. She shook her head, obviously puzzled, but said slowly by rote, Muto is the highest form of the sword's art. It means no sword. One who is a master of Muto need never use a sword, because they are a more deadly weapon than the blade itself could ever be. She snorted derisively, looking over my wounded shoulder, pot belly, and wrinkled countenance. Muto? You? You may once have been a warrior and a killer, Sensei, but you are no master of Muto. I shook my head dismissively. Foolish girl. You do not understand. 
It was not by chance or through training I was dubbed Muto. It is my nature. It is what I am. I am telling you this for your own good. Please leave my shop now and live a long life with your busho. She sneered. The sneered looked particularly repulsive, twisted upon her youthful face. You caused the death of my grandparents, and you expect me to just walk away? Yes. Why should I? For your own protection and survival. Destiny is not an irrevocable matter. Do not throw your life away. The last I said, mouthing each word distinctly. She laughed a low, menacing chortle with no humor in it. You are threatening me? Well, you are the first. The rest were begging for their lives before I even unsheathed my sword. The rest? Again the sneer, and she repeated, You really don't understand. I feared I was beginning to understand, but I responded, No, I do not. Please explain. After my grandparents' death, I spoke with everyone in Echi to help identify the killers. I knew the killer was no villager. No one there has that sort of martial skill. It had to be a stranger. It turned out there were nine visitors from Shinedo that day. The sneer changed to smugness. I spoke with Ingsan, the chattering foreign woman who sells food to travelers. Every one of those visitors stopped for food and drink. She was able to wheedle the names of all, including you. I made a list of every name. That list I have kept for five years. Five years, those names have been the first thing I read in the morning and the last thing at night. After I completed my martial training, I set out for Shinedo. I have been working my way through the list for the last three weeks. I have sought out every traveler. There were nine of you to start. She paused for effect. Now there is only you. What do you mean? Her voice now filled with bitterness and contempt. I wanted no excuses, no explanations, no confusion, no whining. I have dealt with each of you in turn. I am no detective. I have no patience. Since one of you had to be Sobo's murderer, I was not going to be deterred by mercy. The best way to deal with a single rat is to kill all the rats. My only goal was justice. It has taken years of preparation, but now you are the last. It took me a lengthy moment to take in her words. Mara kept the sword focused on me as I sought some trace of humanity in her childlike features. The irony of the inhuman predator Searching for humanity in a reckless killer is ridiculous, but there it was. Her eyes were hard like pebbles, and her fresh features still twisted in hatred. Finally I found words. So in vengeance you have killed everyone who visited your village that day. Eight victims, killed for no purpose other than revenge. Eight innocents all to find me. Silently she shrugged. 
enough. This needed an end. Barasan, do you know a predator never kills without a reason? A wolf kills for food or to defend itself. Wolves do not kill in vengeance. Predators do not have vendettas. I walk slowly forward around the stove, Santoku before me. Even with the great length of Torakira before her, she backed away from the counter. Her own instincts recognized I was now a threat, no longer the victim. Her mouth gaped open as Shinohara-san's old body easily cleared the serving counter to leap within a few feet of her. I had left a broken stream of crimson in my wake along the counter and floor. Bara directed Torakira toward me in a threatening posture at waist level, targeting my left eye. I noticed the point now wavered considerably. I continued forward, ignoring her deadly physical threat. To kill for vengeance is unclean and unworthy. Even a wolf knows that each life has a purpose. You do not kill without hunger. You do not kill without threat. You do not waste life, or soon there is no more life. Stop! She screeched uneasily, seeing my slow glide in her direction. Now she raised the sword above her head into a ready position to strike down upon me. She was lucky the high ceiling of my shop allowed for that attack posture. I ducked under the sword before she could move. Given the long wound I bore, my swiftness must have astonished her to complete immobility. My right hand, bearing the santoku, pushed upward with the knife at the balance point, at the pommel of the suka, where it lay at the center of her smooth forehead. I braced and pushed upward, causing her to quickly unbalance and stumble back awkwardly, one step, two, and into the nearby wall. I pressed backwards further until the point of Torakira was embedded several inches into bone-white plaster. In terror and loathing she started to scream, but my right hand clamped on her neck to shut off her wind and to ensure that the carotid sent no more blood to her brain. She struggled, kicking at me, but I entwined my legs around hers and put all my weight against her. I do not mind death, I breathed to Bara, as her horror-stricken eyes glazed over. I do not mind killing. It is the way of things. It is the way of the universe that brings rebirth. But no one should die without purpose, even if that purpose is to help keep you alive. Your killing is a perversion to which I shall put an end. I could not keep the sharpness out of my voice now. I simply wanted to be left alone. I have been contented here as Shinohara-san these last few years, but you would not leave. You would not put aside your degenerate vengeance. Her skin was now a bluish tint the light of life and consciousness was starting to fade in her eyes. I loosened my grips and slapped her none too gently across her cyanotic cheek. Not yet, I whispered. No, little one, it is not quite time yet. You need to hear this before you go. 
I propped her weakening body up against the wall with my own weight. Bara-san, I have lived for almost a hundred years in Shinedo. I have remained hidden all that time. That is not an easy thing for an assassin and spy. Her tongue lolled, but from the blank horror reflected in her eyes she retained enough tatters of consciousness to hear me and understand. Listen now to how I have hidden among the sheep. Very simply, I am not human, little one. I am a biomimetic construct. I was made, bio-engineered, and only look human. I am faster, stronger, and smarter than any of you. And I have one last secret that you shall take to your grave. I released my grip on her neck. She gasped, uttering repulsive, gagging, croaking noises. But with no warning to Bara, I brought the Santoku up to her throat and nicked her carotid artery deeply. The old mouth of Shinohara-san found the smooth young throat of the girl and sucked. Hot, salty blood gushed in as she let forth a gulping, gurgling scream from her injured throat that could be heard no farther than a few feet away. I swallowed and dropped her to the floor. That was all I needed for the nanobots in my bloodstream to do the genetic analysis. She lay there weakly, frantically clutching her throat, bleeding out. The crimson of her blood mingled with my own and stood out starkly against the otherwise pristine blue and white tiled floor. In her death throes, Bara struggled and beat her feet frenetically. I am no vampire, Barasan, no ghoul. I just needed a sample of your genetic material. Know that your death serves me in this valuable way. I could already feel my body changing, altering, modifying. My newly transformed blood rushed to my head. My shoulder would not need suturing now. It was already knitting with the initial transformation process. I had not been female in decades. This would be a new start for me, and perhaps this incarnation would be better than being Shinohara-san. Wood sense reminded me to lock the front door of the ramen shop and put up the closed sign. I returned to Bara, her futile, slowing struggle to extend her life went on as the wet gulp gulping for air and rasp rasping croak continued for what seemed like unending minutes finally there was silence bar's body finally went still with bulging wide staring charcoal black eyes i knelt beside the dead girl to whom i would soon be a twin being careful to avoid the long smear of blood she had left at her passing, I closed the peasant girl's unseeing orbs. Already my voice matched hers in pitch, and the blue linen Samoe work clothes of Shinohara-san were growing large on me as my body changed further, and the nanobots burned mass. I had no ancestors, so there were no kami, no spiritual forces to whom I could appeal to watch over this pathetic little one's soul. 
She had destroyed herself. She would have to deal with the consequences in her afterlife. It was her karma. Holding on to anger is like grasping a hot coal with the intent of throwing it at someone else. In the end, you are the only one who gets burnt. Little one, I intoned, I shall live a better life than you ever intended to live. As Barasan, I shall strive for purity in spirit. The tiger does not hate. The lion does not seek vengeance. And the wolf accepts his enemies as they are without judgment. The end. We thank you for listening to this Uvula Audio presentation. Copyright 2015. J.J. Campanella. All rights reserved.